Welcome to the Global Supply Chain uh, Conference. We're here talking about the impact of global supply chains in a post-COVID world. I have James Pomeroy, the economist at HSBC. James, how are you today? I'm as well as I can be. Thank you very much, Craig. So you have written, and actually predated COVID, you had written some pieces about de-urbanization, a concept that a lot of people were surprised by, or, or it was hard to accept what a world would look like, where we sort of reverse the urbanization over the last couple of decades. You, you, you wrote these pieces pre-COVID, and now we're living in this uh, post-COVID world that's, that actually your uh, predictions came true. It's always nice when they do come true. As an economist, I guess that's that's not always the case. <laughs> but uh, you know, we've written about these things for a while. And the two main hooks for me, one of which hasn't changed as a result of the pandemic, um, which is demographic trends, I think are really, really important. If you think about, particularly in the developed world, who moves to cities, who lives in cities, it's young people. And young people are a smaller and smaller share um, of the population in the developed world. And the number of people turning 20 or turning you know, 23, 24, 25, every single year in the US, in the UK, and across the developed world is down every year. So naturally, the, the natural push towards urbanization is reduced. And then, of course, the technology side and the uh, the changes we've all made in 2020 and still in 2021 about remote working, it was something that was clearly going to take off. We didn't just, we just didn't expect it to happen so quickly. And it really has changed people's mentality towards um, remote working. And, and, and that's clearly brought forward those predictions we've been making, talking about 2030, and now talking about 2020 and 2021. Now, you had made these predictions just based on technology, technological evolution, sociodemographics. Uh, but the COVID came along and shifted and sort of took 10 years of natural evolution of society into a, a couple of month period. Um, is this, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about post COVID, uh, which some would argue that we're in the first sort of process of that. Others uh, may think differently, but a post COVID world, are we gonna go back uh, to be living in cities and, and is urbanization gonna resume its progress or is this an irreversible uh, a change in society. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's interesting. So this has clearly accelerated that trend, and there's a whole load of things that are so a whole load of other things that the pandemic um, has accelerated. I think there's a few things to to think about. Firstly, is the nature of urbanization, I think, is really, really important. So what you're seeing is a lot of people who are either leaving cities or not moving to cities. They're not going to villages. They're going to the suburbs or they're going to smaller towns or smaller urban areas where you can still get some of those benefits, but you're not paying as much for your accommodation or you can have a garden or you can uh, you can live a little, you know, you can have a little bit more space or, or an extra office or a home office even, which would be uh, a delight, I say, sat in a one bedroom flat in central London. You know, these sorts of things that people um, would really like to, to, to have access to. But then you people like stuff. And I think actually there's parts of the pandemic that have made us all realize that you know, there's <clears throat> there's a lot out there that we like doing. We haven't seen each other. We haven't seen friends, family, all of those things. And in some ways, it makes us appreciate the things that are great about cities. The idea that we can um, go to bars and restaurants and all of those things is something that people do like in cities. And maybe that doesn't mean that urban areas and urbanization is over. It just means it changes shape. And it's less about the big mega cities and much more about um, smaller urban areas. 
So it's, it's more of a suburban flight, a similar, you know, United States patterns of sort of population shifts back in the 60s was to move out of the cities as sort of the baby, baby boomer generation happened. There's a lot of social impacts to that, uh, things that actually had negative impacts. Do you think where we see this take place in a, in a sort of current generation, modern generation, is that is that going to play out where uh, you have this so-called white flight that takes place uh, that we saw in places like Detroit? Uh, it's going to be really interesting because actually you raise a good point that the people who are more likely to leave cities and go to the suburbs or go to the smaller towns are more likely to be those people who are you know, able to remote work, people who work in professional services, people with disproportionately higher paid jobs. Now, that's good and bad, right? Because in your cities, you've got a change in, this, in the nature of that population that could be seen um, as a negative because you're seeing a lot of you know, wealth and money and, and people disappearing from those cities. But that money is also then going to places which are typically on lower incomes. And actually, what you could see is, a, is sort of a real mixed bag. There's so much of growth in the past few decades has been concentrated in huge urban areas. That's true and nowhere more so than where I'm sat right now in London, that London has sort of sucked in growth from around the UK. But if I don't need to be sat in central London to do my job, I don't need to be um, you know, living in central London to do my job, what if I then move to a, to a suburban area or a smaller town, and then my spending, instead of being in the centre of a large city, is locally, be it at the restaurants, the bars, or the local services, actually you could help to lift growth in those places too. So I think what we're likely to see is much more of a sort of equalisation of growth and equalization of incomes around countries is that as the basically the remote nature of work allows all of those sort of prices and costs and quality of life to level up a little bit. And that should be good news um, for those towns and um, suburbs who can benefit from that. So, so you think the sort of the uh, lower cost markets, I, I live in a, a town called Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is two hours north of Atlanta, two hours south of Nashville, um, that has, uh, believe it or not, the world's fastest internet. Uh, is here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And it's interesting because there's been the, the nickname, the town sort of branded as Gig City because you can get 10 gigabyte of internet to your house for something like 160 bucks or something. Um, but but it's, it's interesting because they made this big push about sort of having fiber and the importance of it. And it's now playing out in very much like you stated, where people are relocating from all over the country. Chattanooga is getting written in a lot of magazines as the top place to work from home if, you know, remote work and teleworking. So we've been a beneficiary of it. But there's been this really dramatic rise in real estate prices and inventory has been depleted, which is good if you own homes. It does change the equation of low cost of living to a degree. But we're seeing people move from places like San Francisco and New York and Chicago and places that we weren't pulling a, a large degree or a large amount of people. We're starting to see See those folks show up. But it does strike me that it is going to create or is creating a level of asset inflation or housing inflation here in the city. And it's putting a little, not so much strain yet, we're not there, but a little bit more pressure. Um, but it's also deflating uh, housing prices and uh, rental prices in places like New York and San Francisco. Is You talk about this balancing effect. 
what ends up happening overall? Does inflation, is it left in check because sort of we optimize the country or the globe? Or are we, what are your thoughts there? It's a really good question. And is it, yeah, I'm more on the optimistic side of a lot of things. And, you know, you can, we can talk about this optimization because you've essentially taken away a um, something that's a, that, that can cause a, a, um, a misplacement of resources, essentially. The fact that you need to commute to an office is, a, is an inefficiency, really. And you take that away and maybe people end up almost where they should be or where is optimal and you see some real you know, winners and, and obviously some losers, but it equates things out a little bit. The housing market story at the moment is really interesting, you know, not just in the US, but globally. House prices have had an amazing 2020. And it's because of the nature of this recession that high-income households have been relatively unaffected. Now, people have done relatively well who have worked from home, stored up a fair bit of savings, haven't spent as much going out and going on holiday. They can start to afford to move. Plus, you add to that the fact that interest rates are super low, pretty much everywhere, um, lowest levels ever. Mortgage rates are super low. And by being forced to spend a lot of time in your house every day, you realize how important it is to have a nice one. And all of those things together are pumping up house prices particularly in places that are appetizing places to live, those places with fast internet or you know, that sort of you can afford a bigger home than you could in the city. So what we're seeing is this sort of equalization in house prices between cities where prices are dropping or not going up and outside of those cities where prices are going up a lot. And you can see that really clearly in the rental data as well. You know, rental inflation in the US and in many other parts of the world has come down a lot um, in the course of 2020 and is likely to stay um, substantially lower than it was previously because a lot of rental inflation is driven by or rental demand is driven by people who move to cities in the first place. And if people aren't moving into cities because their graduate job doesn't need to be um, in person or that you don't have as many people working in um, you know, entertainment industries or bars and restaurants because they've closed or whatever, um, people who would maybe typically rent, rental demand is lower. So you've got this really sort of inequality problem, essentially, that people who own property um, and can afford to buy property are really benefiting. And those people who can't um, are, are suffering a little bit in, in some places. And I think that's going to be, that's a broader economic story that's come out of the pandemic, but it's being very, very clearly seen um, in, in the property prices as well. So you mentioned something that I think is really driving a lot of freight demand. I mean, the, the, the amount of freight moving through the globe is at an unprecedented amount. Uh, capacity is incredibly tight. Uh, you know, just in the U.S. off the coast of uh, Long Beach, uh, we posted an article uh, last week that there are 62 container ships uh, looking to berth. They haven't actually made it into shore to be able to offload. Some of them have as many as 15 to 20,000 containers. I mean, it's it's a massive amount of freight that is sitting on the ocean that's not actually uh, in inventory. And it's being driven by consumer uh, changes in consumer buying behavior related to housing. And I'm wondering, and there's a lot of question about how sustainable that is. I'd love to get your thoughts on when we end up in a world where people are able to resume activities, go to concerts and sporting events and not have to wear masks and feel very confident that their health is not compromised. Does that, are we gonna see permanent demand shifts where physical products are still in high demand? Or does this just slow down and do we see a crash in the physical economy? 
I think it's a really good question and it's one of the biggest challenges we're thinking about in 2021. Going back to my sort of short-term role as a global economist, you know, we're trying to think about what is going to drive growth this year. And clearly, as the economy opens up, one of the big questions is how sustainable is that demand for goods? You know, retail sales numbers, you would have seen them in the US um, in January, super strong. Um, that's a story that's repeated almost across the world as people are buying a lot of goods. You can see it in the manufacturing data, you can see it in the trade data, like you say. But my concern about the longevity of that is how much of that spending appears to be in one-off products. So if you start thinking, if you go into the sort of the consumer spending data in any, any economy, you can see the sectors where the spending growth has been the strongest. And it's all thick one-offs. So in the US, I think the number one growth in sort of uh, spending in 2020 has been on pleasure boats, not the exact item you go and buy again and again and again. Um, or bikes have been very, very strong demand. Furniture, of course, that new home desk that we've all got and the new extra screens and maybe a printer and the keyboard and all of that sort of setup. You don't necessarily buy that again or the home gym or any of those sorts of things. So there's a little bit of the goods market has had an unbelievable 2020 because of a lot of adjustment that people have had to make. But actually, in terms of the sorts of goods that you buy continuously, it's hard to say how much demand for them comes back because you could see a switch where you start going back into a lot more sort of non-durable goods spending, such as clothing, which has had a really, really bad um, 2020 because if you're not going out, then why would you need more clothes? And really, that's sort of this, that part of the economy may come back and help to offset um, this drop in some of the one-off purchases um, that, we, that we saw boom in 2020. So I think there's some downside risks there. But equally, if the housing market stays strong and you've got people moving, then you still need to buy more furniture. So all of that together, means you're probably not going to see a year as good as 2020 again in terms of that sheer goods demand, but it doesn't necessarily need to be the end of the world. I mean, I, I, it's interesting because you talk about clothing. I haven't bought a piece of, I haven't bought a pant that didn't have spandex <laughs> built into it in, in over a year, yeah. uh, just because why wear jeans or slacks if you're if you're pretty much staying at home, uh, even. Yeah. Being filmed, nobody really knows, you know, as long as your camera's aimed, you don't even know what you're wearing. Uh, you see, I'm wearing pants for the clip, <laughs> to be clear, but I've seen on TV these people don't have pants on uh, accidentally when, they, when they're not aware that they're on air. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, hasn't, it hasn't come back to bite me yet, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, James, the, the world's shifting. This, it's also creating a, a major demographic shift in populations of people moving to suburbs. Um, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about you know, the lack of babies. Procreation isn't happening. Dating's not happening. Therefore, people aren't having as many babies. It strikes me that that, is, uh, that could have a, a long-term impact on economic growth. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a, another topic we're, we're particularly interested in. I, I've argued for a while that a lot of the fertility rate assumptions that are embedded into everyone's sort of population projections over the next few decades are wildly optimistic. If you actually dig into them just as a quick sort of uh, uh, introduction to the topic, you know, if you look on the UN's assumptions for, for demographics, they assume that pretty much everyone in the developed world starts having more kids in the next decade or two. That's just built in as an assumption, which, which doesn't feel right, given all of the societal changes that are going on, all of the um, shifts in terms of you know, 
people getting married later, people choosing to have kids later, so having fewer kids because they're having their first kid later. Um, you've got a much higher share of females in the workforce, which is again lowering those numbers um, as well. And you've actually got what's an interesting one amongst today's younger generation is a much um, lower willingness to have kids for things like environmental concerns. You know, actually, do people want to have like three kids if they're worried about environmental concerns? That's something that pops up um, in a lot of surveys as well. But actually, if you then take that sort of logic and you extend that into what's happened as a result of the pandemic, well, you've got a, two things that matter. One is a massive amount of uncertainty. Now, if you're thinking of having a kid during 2020, then maybe it's not, uh, maybe you think, well, I'll just wait and see what happens. Maybe we'll just hold off. And then you have a drop in, in the number of babies um, being born in 2021 as a result of that. And actually, you've already seen that in 2020. I think um, the, the data we've got from the likes of China and some US states is suggesting maybe a 15% drop in the number of births in 2020. Big, big numbers. And then if you think, okay, but we've also got a massive economic crisis that's falling disproportionately on those people in their 20s. So that big economic crisis then weighs on the willingness and ability for people to have children or many children in the coming years. And so what we think is actually you're going to see much, much slower growth rates and a big, big challenge for uh, for governments in terms of tax policy, in terms of retirement ages further out, because you're quite likely to see uh, total populations and working age populations shrink much sooner um, than maybe we thought. So and while originally when the pandemic started, some people thought this could lead to a baby boom, actually, it's instead gone the other way. And it seems like we're heading towards a bit of a bust on that front, which will have huge economic consequences. Higher debt levels we've got to pay off anyway, fewer people to pay that off in 20, 30 years time. Um, and of course, that's going to mean slower growth rates because there's fewer, fewer people to go and spend money. Yeah, that would have been my that was my reaction of thinking is uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a married man. And so you think naturally this is going to create it. Uh, but it's interesting because I, I, you know, I have I have a 14 year old son. Um, and it's interesting because you read a lot of the studies about just just the sex culture of younger people. They're not having as much sex, frankly, uh, not only they're not having babies, but they're also not as. Uh, they have distractions and things that keep them busy. And uh, I see it even in my own son is I, I don't even know if he's discovered that activity yet because so enamored with uh, uh, the gaming culture that that's mm -hmm. out there. Yeah. Um, well, it's also uh, interesting. So it's, people, haven't been going What's that? people haven't been able to go on dates as well. Right. So even if you right, did want exactly. to go meet someone, you can't. And uh, <laughs> all of that together makes life much, much harder in terms of, in terms of getting to the stage where you could have babies. Yeah, for sure. The interesting thing that I, I think, you know, our the industry that we cover and that's sort of tuning into this is really concerned about supply chains and the effectiveness of them. As you one of the advantages of being in cities is the fact that you have large concentration of populations to deliver product. It's much more efficient, frankly, to go into a building that has, you know, 100 or 200 or 500 residents than it is to deliver to a suburban area. Um, if this is sustainable, and, I, and I, I take it from your writing in this conversation that you believe that this is a shift that is sustainable, then it means that companies and retailers have to be thinking about investing in further infrastructure that's further away from city centers. Is that is that something that you think will, will be sustainable uh, and, and something that if you're in 
the mind of a retailer uh, that they should be thinking about uh, continuing to make those investments? Most definitely. And I think um, if you, you've got two things at play here, one is this sort of shift in towards these more suburban and smaller towns and all of these sort of trends that we've been talking about. You've also got this massive boom in the online economy. Now, this is ongoing at the same time that the pandemic has meant a lot of people have suddenly realized there's a whole load of things you can buy online that you didn't previously. And you take that together with demographic shifts, you know, young people, like you said, your son is entirely online. When he starts becoming a consumer in five, 10 years time, he's going to buy pretty much everything online. And you compare that to you know, my mum or dad who buy very, very few things online. And actually, if there you get that sort of replacement in the population, you're going to get much, much more um, digital consumption. So then there's two things at play here that really matter in terms of those supply chains is one that you're going to have people who are probably more spread out than in the past. But you're also going to have um, this much, much greater demand for online shopping and deliveries just because the nature of that population shift, the pandemic accelerating the way we think about um, a lot of online online consumption, a lot more demand for those products. So that investment in that infrastructure um, probably makes quite a lot of sense. So James, it sounds like if you were to sort of make some cases of what the next couple of years look like, physical goods, we've seen this high demand for durable consumer items. Um, the consumers are unlikely to continue to buy at the levels that they've been buying those items in four years and in the next couple of years. Um, but when you own a home, you're, you're consuming a lot more than if you own a small apartment. My wife moved from a 400 square foot apartment in middle of Manhattan to a, you know, thousands of, you know, a couple thousand square foot house in the suburb, uh, suburban area. She just, we just naturally consume stuff, right? In these bigger homes. It sounds like that's a bit more sustainable, that that shift is a bit more permanent than, you know, obviously people aren't buying as many exercise equipment or boats, but uh, it strikes me that that is a permanent shift. No, you're right. There's some things that will have a little bit more sustainability. One that we've seen a lot of in, in the last year is um, a lot of stuff around home improvement. So not necessarily durable in the same way as buying your desk or your boat, but things like paint. Now, paint sales unbelievably high demand because, again, you spend more time at home. You want to do it up a little bit more. Furniture sales and so on, you, you may see, but a lot of that is is one-off purchases when you move. And as you're right, you will kit out a, a bigger home and you see a bit more of a lift. But it's more that it's more about the sort of the delta on that as well. So in, in 2020, you had such a big lift because you had so, a lot of people moving and you had the pandemic, meaning a lot of people had to make these one-off purchases. And yes, going forward, you're still going to see people moving out of cities and getting bigger homes and, and so on. That makes a big difference. But equally, if you go against that trend of people having fewer children and smaller house, um, house household sizes, then maybe that counteracts it a little bit. So there's a lot of things moving in different directions. I, I think you're less likely to see the levels of 2020 repeated in the short term. You might get back up there, you know, as, as the economy grows and so on um, further down the line. Um, but I would be much more confident as a sort of two to three year time horizon that the growth in services from where we are today will be more so than goods. But there will still be that goods demand um, just because people will still be spending more time at home than they did previously. And they're going to want those things and um, they give them their, their home comforts. Now, James, the inventory uh, depletion is real. You see the inventory data. Um, the, uh, companies are are, re are trying to restock, but uh, often unsuccessfully to their own desires. Um, it seems like, at least for, for freight demand and supply chains, that this fact will continue 
until inventories reach a more normalized level. Uh, certainly, e-commerce means that you have more inventory. Uh, I think Prologis, uh has something like 40% more inventory. When it's e-commerce related, it requires retailers to uh, have 40% more inventory versus sort of a brick and mortar. Um, um, it's interesting because I, I look at the data and it suggests that this market fundamental, the demand in freight will continue at least for the year, but it could be a rough go in 22 or 23. Is that is that sort of what you would think, uh, that there will be a, a bit of a hangover or are we going to fly right by it with all the <laughs> stimulus? You could do. I mean, this is the other part of it. It's a, we've been talking a little bit about rotation of spending, right, but not necessarily about absolute spending. So I think you're going to get this rotation because we spent so much on these sort of products, we're going to start spending a little bit more on services. But U.S. households in aggregate are pretty well off at the moment. You know, not just U.S. households, actually, in aggregate across the world, households are in pretty good shape. Now, you look at most countries, you're talking about you know, 10% of GDP-ish, maybe slightly less, 7 to 10% of GDP, in additional savings that the household sector has made during 2020. But that's money that gets unleashed somewhere. So far, it's largely been in the property market. But what if it just gets unleashed more broadly? And you keep up actually a little bit more momentum in the growth story. You've got some fiscal stimulus coming in, maybe in the US, maybe you get a little bit of infrastructure spending. Maybe we see more of this across the world in terms of the green revolution, and we see a little bit more sustainable growth. All of this together actually keeps quite a fair bit of demand in the economy. I know there's a few risks out there in the labor market and, and, and you know, the, the, the whole vaccine-based recovery and all of those sorts of things quite clearly. But there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic about an actual broad-based consumer recovery in the coming years because of that strong position the households are in and this additional stimulus that we could be getting across the world. So you know, th there are reasons to be optimistic. Even if there is a rotation out of goods into services in terms of that share of spending, actually that aggregate pie of consumer spending um, could go up. Um, quite a bit in the coming years, as long as um, as long as their jobs out there. Now, is inflation? Are we going to see rapid inflation, or is it going to be more muted? We're not so concerned about that. Um, we think we're going to see pretty high inflation rates in the first half of this year, partly because the oil price, food prices in particular, and the obvious disruption in freight, as, as we've been discussing, you know, causing a fair bit of bottlenecks uh, that, that can lead to, to some supply shortages and pushing up prices. But all of those effects will probably fade out in the second half of the year. Then you've got this sort of question of what happens about that demand. Well, what if all of that demand is so heavily, the growth in demand is concentrated in the services sector in the second half of this year, then you've got this, um, then, then yes, you could see a big amount of inflation in flight prices, in restaurant prices, hotel prices, if people really want to go back out to those places. They're really, really small share of the inflation basket. So if you're the Fed or you're an economist following that headline CPI or that core PC index in the US, it's hard to see how um, that aggregate number gets lifted too much by those components. And then, of course, you've got rents. And we spoke about that right at the beginning, thinking about you know, house prices and so on. And if there's a drop in rental demand because you're moving to cities or you've got um, people going out and buying houses rather than being renters, then actually that rental inflation could stay a little bit lower um, in the coming years. And I think all of those things together mean you get a little bit of a lower um, inflation, um, sort of a, a fair bit of low inflation in the second half of this year. And that's an environment where interest rates stay low. And that's a good, good news story for the housing market um, more broadly. Yeah, as people locate outside of cities, it does drive down, as you mentioned, rent uh, prices being driven down. Is New York and San Francisco and London is peak? Have we seen peak London and peak San Francisco, in your opinion? Or, or is, it, is there going to be this sort of renaissance uh, of changing how the cities work um, 
there is a theory that when you have this, that the cities work because they are, they're very packed in and efficient. When you start pulling off the layers, particularly of the higher income folks, that some of that infrastructure and taxation base goes away. I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts there? It's, it's a really difficult one because I, I, I fail to see how these cities survive in the same way in terms of workers. You know, is there? A, I take Canary Wharf, where HSBC's office is in, in central London. Now, is there, without the same flood of people going into Canary Wharf every single day, are you going to see the same demand for all of the amenities that are there? Is there need to be the same number of sandwich shops, same number of coffee shops, same number of bars there? Probably not. But if you look at London on a weekend, packed. I mean, New York on a weekend, packed. That's not workers. That's people who want to have fun. And actually, I think there's an, an angle to be made in terms of that has not gone away. And it may be that people don't live in the city anymore because you don't need to make that commute every single day. But what you want to do is you want to be in striking distance. You want to be able to go, you know what, Saturday, I'm going to go out with my friends or it's someone's birthday or I'm going to go out with my partner, we're going to go for a nice dinner or whatever. You want that within striking distance. And I think that's why these suburban areas and these smaller towns around big cities would do really, really well in terms of people moving there. But actually, the cities can keep their verve, but it's much more about entertainment, places you go to have fun. And cities have always been that, but it's more that that's the tilt. Is can you can, can cities keep that part of it growing? I'm always amazed in London. Is my example of sort of uh, exuberance is there's a there's a place in London you can go and play darts. Um, it's called Flight Club, and it's uh, there's there's a few of them in the US, I think now. And uh, the, the the main one in London was located in the middle of the city, in the middle of the city of London, financial district. You'd think, why would anybody be there at the weekend? There's absolutely no reason why anyone would go there. Every single Saturday booked up for the entire day <laughs> to go and pay, I think it's like 20 pounds or something to play darts for 40 minutes on an electronic board. Ridiculous. Makes absolutely no sense. This, you walk out of, the, out of the bar, no one on the streets. You go into the bar, packed. And I think that's, that's a good example of how cities will work is it's all about the leisure and the fun and there are places where you go and you meet people. And even if you don't live in the same place, there's transport networks that, that connectivity will happen. It's more for leisure uh, than work. And I think cities will survive in a different way for that reason. Yeah, I, my wife being from uh, the city from Manhattan, uh, I always enjoy going up to visit, but living there, and we've at, at points in our relationship, we've had those conversations. Would, would I live there? It's very different. You know, I, I live on land, and it's a very different experience to sort of move into a city and the things that she now, when she goes back to Manhattan, she always complains about how everything becomes, she's now aware of stuff that she wasn't aware of before. So, it's an interesting dynamic. Well, James, I really appreciate that. I'd like for you, before we go, for you to make one bold call that maybe is off the radar for people over the next decade. What what can we expect society to look like in the next decade? Uh, so our biggest call, I guess, and the, the things we've spoken about is we put out a number. We think that half of retail sales will be online by the time we get to 2030. That sounds like a mad number. And when I first said that, people were like, okay, it's 10, 15% today. How does it get to 50? I said, well, go back 10 years. Think about what we used to buy uh, physically um, that seems mad now. 10 years ago, we would have gone into a shop to buy a flight. And if you said to me now, after this call, I'm going to go down to the, go into the, go into town to buy a flight, we would both think that was crazy. And I think more and more of our spending patterns are going to adjust like they have in the last decade. They're going to keep going again. And I think that generational shift plays a big role in that too. And I think 50% of retail sales online by 2030 uh, may not be as ridiculous as it might sound um, first off.
I think many people in our audience enjoy hearing that because that means more miles, more freight moving through the economy. Uh, and logisticians uh, have been on the front lines of the COVID recovery and uh, certainly are, are playing an important role in the shift towards e-commerce and continuing uh, migration towards that. James, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it's been a fabulous conversation. I'd love to keep it going, but unfortunately we don't have any more time. Um, how can folks uh, best reach you if they're interested uh, and connecting with you and maybe have questions. Yes, of course. The best way of reaching out is, is to find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. I don't think there's many James Pomeroy's uh, who work at HSBC. Um, what we do on there, as well as we're starting to share much more of our research publicly and public versions of it and reversions things for LinkedIn, so you can get access to that. And if any of you in any way are customers of HSBC, you can get access to a much more detail um, as well. So hopefully that acts as a good resource, both to see what we're saying in sort of real time, but also to connect with me if you do have any questions. James, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you.